0: Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter number four. We have been studying the book of Acts for several weeks and we are going to continue to study it. I was looking at the sermons messages that will be coming up and we are uh, we're going to be in it to win it. It is a long haul series and we're already seeing an incredible amount of fruit. I want to pick up in the same kind of um, vein that we left off two Sundays ago uh, when last we gathered in the book of Acts together and we're going to be in chapter number 4 and in verse number 5. If you're visiting here today, one of the things that I started doing a few years ago, and it's just something that I it just kind of galvanizes us together around the Word. We like to stand in honor of the reading of the opening passage. And so if you're physically able, would you honor God's Word with me and stand on your feet? I want to bring you a message called Developing Spiritual Spines. And you'll understand why I called it that as we read this passage together. Acts chapter 4, verse 5. On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them, that's the disciples, Peter and John primarily, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, who has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. These are fun passages. This is good stuff. I'm going to pray. I'm going to say one thing and then I'm going to pray and then I'm going to have you sit sit down. Um, Boldness is not permission to be obnoxious. Boldness is not our biblical right to be jerks with the gospel. So we need to understand from where boldness flows and what it looks like. And as we study the book of Acts, you're going to see it over and over again. But I'm going to give you this. Your boldness is only as pure and acceptable before God to the degree that it's rooted in love. If boldness is not rooted in love, it's carnal. It's fleshly. It's proud flesh. And so we want to begin to grow in this area, not only discerning the activity of boldness, but the motivation of it. So Father, in Jesus' name now, teach us. Holy Spirit, you're the teacher. You're the teacher. The Savior said you would teach us all things. So teach us this this morning, and Lord, increase our boldness as you increase our love. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right, this this passage is really easy, to be honest with you. It's not hard. It's not above anybody's head. It's narrative. If you'll remember last time... Peter and James, excuse me. Peter and John had gone up to the temple at the hour of prayer there was a beggar who had been there for years and years and years uh, he was lame in his body he could not get up, he could not stand he was lame from birth according to the word of God he was paralyzed and disabled to where he could not do anything for himself and he lay there at the gate of the religion week after week, month after month, decade after decade, nobody could help him and he was a beggar. And then Peter and John went up and they looked upon him and they said we don't have any money to give you but what we do Have we want to share with you? So, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And they healed him. When they healed him, he did what we ought to do when we get set free. He started shouting and leaping and dancing and twirling. And I I would just summarize it to say he really messed up the church service that day. (laughs) Because now we're further into the, the narrative, we're in chapter number four. And everybody in the religious elite, the power brokers, the managers, the people of position, they're really upset because you've got somebody doing something that doesn't jive with their, their lens that they put over the kingdom of God. He, he's noisy, he's loud, he's animated, and he's hanging out with two of those followers of Jesus when, when they were hoping, the religious leaders, that they had exterminated The followers of Jesus and now they've got a real problem on their hand because Jesus is dead but his followers have come alive and they're healing people and if you're familiar with your bible you'll know that the scribes and the pharisees and the sadducees didn't have much of a healing ministry because they had no power they just had control and so when we get into this we're going to see a conflict of two kingdoms the religious kingdom and the kingdom of God and this is where I want me uh, excuse me I want myself I want you and I together to grow in our understanding what it means to develop a spiritual spine and let's just let the text speak this morning. Let's provide in verses 5, 6, and 7 some context when you see the interrogation of the church. Peter and John are the primary representatives of the church. They're two of the leaders, and they're getting interrogated. In verse number 5, you're going to see that there was an overwhelming resistance. Look in verses 5 and 6. In verses 5 and 6, this is what the scriptures say. On the next day, the day after the man was healed, the ruler's the elders, the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. And then the high priest Annas was there, Caiaphas was there, John and Alexander, and everybody in the high priestly family. So I want you to get this very simple picture. We're we're wanting to celebrate this. A guy who is over 40 years old, never walked, never run, never leaped, never leapt, never shouted, never did anything. He gets radically healed. He comes in. He's on display for everybody to see. And you would think that the whole place, especially those representing the Lord, especially the leaders, you'd think that they would say, hallelujah, something amazing is happening in the kingdom. But they didn't. They had a committee meeting. So they get this committee meeting together, and you got all the power brokers, you got the bigwigs, you got the high priest there, you got his whole household there, you got the elders there, you've got the, the Bible scholars, the scribes are there, and the uh, Pharisees are there. So you've got all of these guys, and, and then you've got, you know, Elmer Fudd and Jethro Samples, Peter and John. I mean, they're, they're there standing before this group, and they're hanging out with, with this man who's been newly healed. But I want you to understand, this was a really intense and serious moment. These are the same people that crucified Jesus just a short time before. And now Peter and John have been summoned in to stand before them. So it was a hostile situation too. Verse number 7, very simply, just the wording of it. They set them in the midst. The picture is not that they were cordially invited to share a little of their heart at a meeting. It means they had been subpoenaed. They were dragged in. You're going to find out all throughout the early chapters of Acts and further that, that the Christians were not treated with kid gloves. They were manhandled. They were beaten. They were tortured. They were imprisoned. And this is the beginning of it here. So they were brought in and they're set in the midst. The whole thing is supposed to be a very hostile scene of intimidation. But I love what we see here. Because how many of you have learned at this point in your life that God can take your opposition and turn it into an opportunity? And that's what's about to happen here. This is beautiful because what it says to me is God does not shrink when your circumstances get more intense against you. And so it becomes an incredible opportunity. It all happens in one question. Somebody says, by what power and by what name did you do this? (laughs) The blindness of religion is stunning. They're not asking, hey, tell us what's going on. We need to understand more. We want to be a part of this. We, if, if this is really of, of your master, Jesus, then we need to repent. They're not asking in a way that's curious and humble. They're demanding to know who in the world authorized this miracle because we sure didn't. That's literally the attitude. That's the way it is with religious power brokers. They don't like anything happening that they can't explain or control. And you don't have to have a leadership position, by the way, to have that kind of uh, spirit running through a person. I mean, it's just the idea that, hey, if I don't understand it, it can't be valid. And if I can't explain it, it's not going to be valid. And if I can't control it, then we're going to kill it. And that is the spirit of religion. Religion places a stranglehold on the works of God. And that's what was attempting to be, uh, that was what they were attempting to do here. So the interrogation of the church begins, but it's an awesome opportunity because the very question that was more like an accusation, who told you you could do this, is Peter's gateway to deliver the gospel. And that's what's about to happen here. By the way, let me just give you this. The reason why the religious leaders were very upset is because, if you look in the chapter before, because of this man's testimony and Peter's sermon that followed it, 5,000 people dedicated themselves to Jesus Christ. It was a bigger harvest than Pentecost. 5,000 people were saved because of the sermon. They were saved through the truth, through the word, through faith in the Messiah. But the gateway to that moment was a physical healing. That God often will use a healing to bring about an awareness and a focus. But let me just make this very clear. Salvation doesn't come through a physical healing. But oftentimes an audience will gather based on a physical healing to hear the gospel that does bring salvation. And that's what happened here. But the Pharisees and the scribes and the bigwigs, they did not like it at all. So look down at verses 8 through 12. Peter now has an opportunity. Here's the proclamation of the church. Verse number 8. I want you to notice the prerequisite for this powerful proclamation. The Bible says, Peter filled with the Spirit. Now I'm going to submit to you that Peter had been walking in the Spirit. Peter had been yielded to the Spirit. Pentecost radically changed Peter. I think even before that, Jesus restoring Peter back into ministry, personally going after Peter when he had failed, when he had denied Christ. And yet, Jesus went after Peter, and he had even told him, you're going to fail me, but when I restore you, I want you to feed my lambs. And then on the beach that day, they were having barbecue fish out there, and Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter ultimately was broken and restored back to fellowship with the Lord and restored back to serving the Lord. Then Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit fills everybody in the upper room. Peter comes out, he delivers a a, a beautiful speech weaving in Old Testament scriptures and a testimony of what was happening in that moment on Pentecost. 3,000 were saved that day, and Peter was a man in the Spirit. But here it says, in this moment, he was filled with the Spirit. I believe this was a particular unction. This means that this was an appointment from God which Peter already yielded to the Spirit and walking in the Spirit was a prime candidate for that purpose in that moment to be filled with the Spirit. I think this is important for all of us. I I, I don't make any apologies for this. I want to live a Spirit-filled life all the time, and I'm going to confess something. I don't. I do not. I'm grieved regularly. Where, where I realize that weariness or frustration or any of the other things that pepper you and pepper me—they come against us. And in those moments, I realize this is an op- obstacle. It's an opposition, but it could have been made an opportunity. But I wasn't filled with the Spirit. Thankfully, Peter was in this moment, and so he's going to stand up and he's going to speak with a spine. He's not going to apologize. He's not going to say, man, we really didn't know this miracle was going to mess up the temple service that day. We apologize. I tell you what, we'll take it down to Capernaum. We'll have a, you know, kind of a beach ministry and, uh, you know, we won't trouble you anymore. Peter's like, did they just ask me who healed this man? Do I really, John, do I really? John's like, do it, man, do it, come on. And so, now that's not in the Bible, but (laughs) sanctified imagination might let us go there. So look at what he says. Look at the precision Of the powerful proclamation. Peter didn't waste any time. Look at this. Look at what he says. If we are being examined concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, that's boldness, and to all of the people of Israel, that's more boldness, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, boldness in triplicate right there. Whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, who has become the cornerstone. Now, I love this because Peter got all biblical on him. Peter is using biblical references, biblical imagery. He's talking about the cornerstone. He's talking about the rejection of the builders who throw away the cornerstone. And that's a, that's a, um, a, a biblical symbolism of, of israel and their leaders rejecting jesus who was supposed to bring the whole thing for israel together they set him aside but look at what peter did peter makes a case he's like just read with me here he's saying if you're really wanting to know about this wonderful thing that's happened Because they didn't see it as a wonderful thing, but Peter went ahead and and re-cemented it as a really awesome thing. By the way, isn't it a good thing when a man who's 40 plus years old and has never taken a step is able to not only step, but to leap and shout and praise the Lord? Isn't that a good thing? Even if it messes up the church service, right? That is a good thing, right? Some of you are not convinced. Well, uh, no, it's a good thing. Ask the guy who was raised up and he'll tell you, no, it was a good thing. So we rejoice with those that rejoice. And so Peter says, all right, if you're asking us about this good thing, and he details it, it was a uh, a disabled person that is now healed. He goes, I want you all to know something. Now, I, I don't sense any obnoxiousness. Let me tell you what I sense, fearlessness. He's not being obnoxious. He's not grinding an ax. He's saying, you need to know something that I know. Just like I didn't give the lame man some things that I didn't have, but I did give him what I do have. Peter's now saying to the scribes, and remember, they're the bigwigs. They're an intense group. They killed Jesus. And Peter says, I want all you guys to know something. That it was Jesus. You remember him, don't you? The one you crucified. Yeah, the same one that the Father raised up. Yep, this Jesus, the cornerstone, it's by him that this man has been made well. Now, I'm saying that with a little bit of passion that may or may not have been the way Peter said it. But the point being is this, he was really precise. He didn't squander his opportunity. He didn't shuffle his feet. He, didn't, he wasn't politically correct. He, he, I mean, he's standing in a hostile setting where you've got two opposing forces, and they're coming against him first, and they're coming against him hard, and he just starts invoking the name of Jesus and pointing to the evidence of a man that was healed. And he doesn't seem to want to, to harm anybody or hurt anybody. He's giving them the, the gospel. Look in verse number 12. Here's the point, the point of the powerful proclamation. After mentioning the name of Jesus Christ, he says, there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What is he saying there? He's talking to the Jewish leaders who their whole history and their whole lives and their father's lives and grandfather's lives, all of them have been asking the question, who is the Messiah and what is his name? Who is the Messiah and what is his name? Who is the Messiah and what is his name? When a baby boy was born in Israel, the, the heartbeat of those parents, if they had the right lineage, they would wonder, could our son be the Messiah? Could our son be the prophet that would follow Moses? Could our son be the, the son of David? Could it be our son? And so they're always wondering, who is he? What is his name? Who is he? What is his name? And then Peter tells them that Jesus is the one that God sent. His name is Jesus. And guys, there is no other name whereby we must be saved. That's what he said. He said, that was it. And so he's letting them know, you don't have to wonder who he is in the future. He's already come in the past, but you can experience him in the present. And they didn't know that. And so Peter is telling them his name is, not was, is Jesus. Now before we get lost in a historical moment, let me just make a really clear point. His name is still the only name that saves. It is the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And religion and anti-religion will offer you a myriad of ways to bring you to some sense of false peace that you are okay before a holy God. Try to do better, be moral, get baptized, join a church, give some money. Try not to, you know, don't go to R-rated movies. Quit cussing and brush your teeth twice a day and, you know, go to church. And then if you really, really want an extra spacious suite in heaven, come to Elevate Hour too. Go to 9 a.m. and 10.30. And if you really want to blow the doors off the kingdom, come on Wednesday nights. And then, So there's so many religious things. Uh, you, you've got anti-religion. That people tell you just be moral, be good. Then you've got competing religions. You've got Islam. You've got Buddhism, Taoism, got New Ageism. a lot of isms out there. But the Bible, and I have to preach this to Christians now because some Christians are getting a little greasy on this. The Bible says there is nobody else. That's the, that is the foundation of who we are and what we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way by which a person can be made whole and acceptable before God and the reason why briefly is this is that we are all born as sinners we are fallen we have sinned even if we weren't born that way we chose it by the time we were 2 years old we choose sin so we're fallen we've come short of the glory of God God's eyes are too pure to behold sin therefore we're in a pickle a dilemma If his eyes are too pure to behold sin, and yet we are sinners sinners and sinful, how will he ever be able to look upon us for eternity? Well, Jesus Christ was born of a woman, came and entered the human experience, always did those things which pleased the Father. Never once did he sin, not with his lips, not with his mind, not with his actions. And he laid that life down on the cross as a substitutionary lamb, a sacrificial lamb, In other words, God has to pay for sin. Sin must be atoned for. It must be paid for. If you choose, you can pay for your sin. You can. You'll pay for it for all of eternity, ever paying, never paid up. Or, hallelujah, the or of the gospel. Or, you can recognize that Jesus, having no sin of His own to die for, came, perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father the heart of justice, the heart of holiness of the Father, fulfilled it and gave himself and became sin. He became my sin. He became your sin. And the wrath of the Father was poured out on him because he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So God took all of my nasty, put it on Jesus, took all of Jesus' purity and put it on me. And he said, son, when you believed, that's what I did and I did it forever. And and friend, nobody else can do that. You say, well, Jeff, how do we know it's real? Well, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and lives evermore. That was the Father's amen on Jesus saying it is finished. And so, brothers and sisters, we have a risen Savior. I mean, we sang about it, but think of the theological implications of that. As long as Jesus is alive, I'm good. I'm safe. I'm secure. I'm holy. That is the gist of the gospel. And so Peter summed it up in a much shorter phrase, and he said, y'all have been wondering about the name of the Messiah for a long time. Let me tell you what it is. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Aren't you glad you know the name? Aren't you glad that somebody brought you the gospel? That somebody, God in His providence sent somebody to you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, That the Lord met you. And it wasn't some academic incidental kind of thing that the Lord pursued you and He opened up your heart by faith, and the gospel took root, and you came alive, and alive forevermore you will be. So this is the proclamation of the church. Now watch this, because we can have all of our stuff right. We can have all of the answers, all of the boldness. We can take our opposition, turn it into an opportunity, and the opposition doesn't necessarily go away. And it didn't in the book of Acts. This is just the beginning of their opposition. So look in the opposition to the church, verses 13 through 18. Let me tell you something about the first century church and see if we can extract some things that we might want to reclaim for the 21st century church. The church in Acts was not impressive. Verse number 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And look at their conclusion. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they're looking at Peter and John. That's why I called them Jethro Samples and Elmer Fudd. I mean, they're looking at these two, you know, they're country boys, are rednecks. I mean, they're, they're, they're not prim and pristine and proper kind of educated. When you see that word, it says they were uneducated men. It's a Greek term that means they didn't have any letters behind their name. They didn't have their masters of divinity. They didn't have a PhD. They didn't have a doctorate in Hebrew law. They were fishermen. They had calloused hands and, you know, Uh, sun-tanned faces, and as as they're standing before the religious elite, the blue bloods, the highbrow, the Bible scholars, I mean, they are in the flesh outmatched, but good thing they weren't in the flesh. And so they perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished. So Peter and John are standing before this intimidating or presumably intimidating group of men. And they had no credentials, but they had courage. They were devoid of credentials, but they were full of courage. I, I don't know what the enemy tells you about why you can't be effective in the kingdom, but I just want to remind you he's a liar. Um, Paul would address this thing, and in speaking of our salvation, he said, Don't forget that not many wise were called, not many noble, not many mighty. Because the, the the economy of God is this: God, when He wants to get a masterpiece, I, and I mean this as reverently as I, I hope you'll receive it, He's a junkyard artist. When the Lord wants to create a masterpiece, He, he goes to the junkyard. He goes to the scrap heap. He, he likes to pull out the rusted parts, the dented parts, the broken parts, the parts that are going to need a lot of bondo. I mean, He He likes to go and extract the shattered things and He brings them into His His art studio. And he begins to work with hands of majesty, and he brings forth great things. Why do I say that? Listen, I'm all for getting a biblical education. I have one. I'm all for studying, learning, growing. I am not against us having earned degrees or even uh, conferred degrees. That's fine. But what I'm saying is you don't necessarily need that. What we do need is what Peter had, a fullness of the Holy Spirit. And something else I'm going to tell you about before we end this morning. So they had no credentials, but man, they had more courage than all the credentialed men in the room. I, I, I just think that it's important that the stay-at-home mom knows she's a powerhouse for Jesus. I, 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 I want the, the, the divorced man whose wife skipped town, I want him to know that he is a warrior for Jesus and doesn't have to ask for a move and a second and a vote. I, I, I want the person who grew up neglected, squelched, smothered, cast aside, or ignored. I want that person to know that Jesus has never taken his eyes off of you and that he is working all things together for your good. And the fact that you didn't receive in the early years, if you look at it by faith, it just means the harvest is going to be greater in the latter years. And so we have to come to a place where we recognize that all of the goodness of kingdom in in the kingdom is not for the other lady or the other guy. It's for you. So how do you know that, Jeff? Because God doesn't worry about running out. He's never saying, well, i, I got to allocate this stuff properly lest I come up short in the end. This is the Lord. He, pro- he lived and died and rose and intercedes so that all that the kingdom offers is available to anyone who wants it. The issue is not in his generosity. The issue is in our willingness to press in and receive it. And, and there's so much there for you. Sometimes we're saying, well, let me just get a couple of letters behind my name. Let me get this. Let me do this. Let me do this. No, and it's just silly stuff. And, and I actually think a lot of the times the credentials get in the way or the pursuit of them can. They don't have to, but they sometimes do. And so look further in this. Uh, uh, look, stick with me in verse number 13. It says when they looked at Peter and John, they deduced a couple of things. First of all is these guys are hillbillies. But, they've been with Jesus, and the end result was that the Bible says, this is what the Bible says, that the leaders, the doctors of law, the Bible scholars, the the powerhouses, the most religious of the religious elite, looked at them, and the Bible says they were astonished by Peter and John and the lame man. Peter and John and the lame man. I just, I I think of him, man. He's just standing there saying... (laughs) This is so great. He's probably oblivious to the intensity of it. He's just like, man, I was laying outside yesterday. I was, uh, this is great. Isn't this great? You know, he probably thinks they're going to bust out a celebratory cake with candles in it, and that's not what they're looking to do at all. Why were they astonished? They were astonished for a lot of things. It wasn't just what was going on in that moment. It was everything that led up to it. They were astonished because Peter and John in the early church possessed an anointing that those religious leaders knew nothing about. And they knew it. They knew it. They were astonished because not only did Peter and John and the others possess that anointing, they released a power that these religious people knew nothing about. And they knew that too. They were proclaiming, Peter and John were, a savior whom those religious leaders did not know. They had killed Jesus, and Peter and John saying, you actually actually killed him, but he's not dead. He's actually alive. And the religious leaders were astonished. They could not get their hearts, their souls wrapped around that. And then ultimately, I think in the moment, they were astonished because Peter and John were operating in a courage that the religious leaders could not intimidate. They expected Peter and John to be sweating their tunics out. And they weren't. They're standing there, and Peter's actually turning it up a notch. And so the end result is the leaders are saying, something is going on here. And it blew their minds. Let me give you a couple of other things. And I, I really don't want to be a critic of the church, but I do want to raise the awareness that there's so much more for today's church than that which we are operating in. And this may hurt a little, but really, I don't want it to hurt. I want it to cause you to thirst. I want us to be aware. I I want to break into the status quo acceptance of the 21st century average Bible belt evangelical church. And I want some voices to rise up and to say, we don't want to be status quo. It's not right. It's not good enough. It's not acceptable. It's, It's not the full will of God. I said, well, Jeff, what are you talking about? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here we go. First of all, not only was the church in Acts not impressive, the church in Acts was not explainable. You couldn't explain the church. Look in verses 14 through 16. Forgive me. I'm teaching this morning, but just roll with me. These verses will be up on your screen. Church in Acts was not explainable. So they saw the man who was healed standing beside them. They had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, Peter, John, y'all get out of here, take that guy with you. They conferred with one another saying, what are we going to do? For a notable sign has been performed through them. It's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. Verse 21, they bring them back in. They further threaten them. They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for everyone was praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Wow, this is where I'm convicted. I mean, me personally. As a Christian um, and and as a church leader, there's very little that's going on in, in our church, and it's good, but there's very little going on that's unexplainable. Hear me on this. Doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean it's invalid. But I'm going to tell you, much and most of what we've seen is explainable. Say, Jeff, what are you talking about? Our lame don't stand. Our blind don't see. Our deaf don't hear. Our addicts aren't Leaping, shouting, twirling, declaring deliverance. Our marriages aren't much different from those that don't know Jesus. There are many who probably could have the testimony that God delivered them from racial strongholds in their heart, but they're not delivered. And so their racism is suppressed and managed, but not evicted drug addictions, even simple things that maybe don't make the list of the nasty nine or the terrible 12, but bondages that are broken, bitterness, anger. We don't yet see the undeniable, inexplicable activity of God that nobody can write off as just the course of time bringing certain things to pass said, so Jeff, what are you saying? Again, I don't want to be critical, but I do want to elevate our hunger. And I, I, Maybe this is a good time for me to just process publicly something here. I have something attached to my personality that can come off as never satisfied. And I, I want to just say, amen, I hope I'm never satisfied this side of heaven. And the reason why is because every single one of you that are born again, you have heaven in your heart. Your longings are heavenly. Your thirsts are heavenly. Your aspirations and desires and hungers and goals and aims, they're rooted in an eternal kingdom. Therefore, nothing on earth can satisfy them. And if we are perpetually satisfied, and we never sense urgency, and we're never convictable, and we never want more, and we're never thirsting after fresher, cooler, more, more torrential waters from heaven, then I'm saying to myself, we have a double reason to be convicted. So we can be content, but I don't know that we can ever settle. And so, when, yeah, it's getting quiet in here. That's okay. Process it. Process it. Let me ask you, is God doing anything unexplainable in your life? It's not an accusation. It's a question. I'm asking myself this. Is God doing anything unexplainable? Now, we give God glory for all sorts of stuff, and we should. We should give God gl- gl- glory for anything. But I'm going to tell you something. That's good among Christians who are already in the know. Because when, when you tell me that you want to give God the glory for doing something in your life, I can look at you and say, hallelujah, what a glorious God. But let me just tell you something. To skeptics, unbelievers, agnostics, and people living in an antichrist spirit, they laugh at our little platitudes. It's effective with each other, and it's genuine. But if we're going to make a mark in an unbelieving generation where the hostility and the opposition to God and his people is elevating incrementally by the month, there is not going to be the possibility that we just stay in our little Wednesday and Sunday gatherings trafficking in the explainable. I'm asking God to give us the unexplainable. Why? Because it's only the unexplainable that gets in the face of Pharisees, Sadducees, and Scribes, and other unbelieving types, and where they say, what are we going to do about this? We can't say anything about it. Did you catch what their testimony was? Their testimony was, we don't like it, we don't agree with it, we don't want to support it, but what are we going to do about it? Why? Because they couldn't argue with results. You can't argue with a lame person standing there who they saw for 40 years at the front door. So they weren't explainable, they weren't impressive, but hallelujah, they were not ignored either. Verse 17, the church in Acts was not ignored, but in order, now this is the edict, this is the the verdict of the religious people, in order that it may spread no further among the people, right in the margin of the Bible, epic fail. (laughs) They did not accomplish that task. In order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone. (laughs) I'm laughing, in this name. So they called them and charged them. Uh, I'm sorry, this is striking me as it's funny. It's, it's ludicrous. No, 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 Peter and John, no, no. Are you kidding me? They just raised that guy up from paralysis. No more of this. I said, we don't want you talking about Jesus. We don't want you going about this healing business anymore. And you can't tell anybody anymore. You hear me? (laughs) It's just funny stuff. What a colossal failure. They're still in this place, though. And this is the nature of religion, by the way. Religion, when confronted with the power of God, religion likes to try to assert the authority that it used to have. Yeah. Yeah. So the power of God moves into a religious setting and it's like that umbilical cord that Christy prophesied about. That religion has been feeding that baby for so long. God cuts that cord. Maybe that's the interpretation of that word she gave. Cuts that cord and the religious are still saying, feed me, feed, and they're clutching the umbilical cord and God's saying, I'm not doing that anymore. That's not the way I'm going to feed what I'm birthing. And so friends, they dug in their heels and they did the only thing they could do. They didn't have any influence. They were losing it. They didn't have any power compared to Peter and John. They they had human authority, manipulation, control. but They didn't have any power. So the only thing they could do is write rules. And that's what religion does. Religion writes a rule against everything it's uncomfortable with. And so what happens is a relationship with God ends up being a call to master 642 rules, each of them having 312 sub-rules attached to it. And give it another month, and five new voices will add to the rule list. And Jesus came to destroy the works like that of the devil. And so they, they scolded these you know, bad, bad boys. They just scolded them. Uh, here's, here's Peter's spine. Now watch this. They would not be ignored, but they would not be intimidated. Verse 19 and 20, the church in Acts was not intimidated. Peter and John answered them. Here's their summary. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Bold. 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 Peter says, look, fellas, you're the ones who called this meeting. I didn't come here to try to change your mind. I'm telling you the answer to the question that you asked. Y'all had your little private committee meeting. We're back here in front of you. You've told us that you don't want us talking about Jesus and you don't want us helping people in his name anymore. You guys represent God to the nation and y'all are going to have to go back to God to find out whether or not he would have us obey him or you. But I just got to tell you, Peter says, we're going to have to keep doing what we just started doing. And they did. And they did it in such a way that here we are, an ocean apart, 2,000 years later, and we are being called to that same boldness. And we are empowered for that same boldness. And we have that same message. They didn't cower. They didn't apologize. They didn't get obnoxious with it. Study the book of Acts. You're only going to find one time where there's a halfway questionable moment and that came from the Apostle Paul, where he did something that he said later he regretted. And, and, one of his, and when he was being hauled away, he, he threw a grenade out there that caused the two groups that were trying to get him to fight with each other. And later he said, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. But other than that, the boldness of the Christians was, was not a, a, you know, a picketing, a protesting, a whining. Christians, can I just say this? I, I've been on Facebook for over a month now, probably one of the best decisions I made. I'm doing ministry posts and everything on Transforming Truth and New Bridge. But some of y'all's very spirits are getting fed by all the whining and complaining by Christians being done on Facebook. Guys, unbelievers see that and they're like, man, that's explainable. That's just a bunch of right-wingers whining and hiding behind their Bibles. That's over. That's like 2016, amen? (laughs) You know, boldness is not obnoxiousness. It's not perpetual whining. I'm all for being proactive in the, in, within the culture that we live in. But some of us ought to really just kind of slow down and, and go to God and say, how would you like me to be proactive? I guarantee he's probably not going to say, more Facebook posts. <laughs> just, keep, just keep firing off the Facebook posts. It's going to work. All right, sorry about that. That probably wasn't overly sanctified. But my, my point being is this. Why were they bold? I'm going to give you this. Worship team, come on up, please. Peter and John had been and were being radically transformed by the agape love of God through Christ. The men they were standing before were the very men that facilitated the false court cases against Jesus. They all happened back to back to back. And ultimately stirred the crowd up in hypocrisy, planting illegal witnesses in Jesus' trials... To crucify the master. Some people would say boldness would have been, hey guys, what you gonna do about the layman? You can't do that. (laughs) What are you gonna do? You wanna match that? Hey, I got the answer, but you guys don't wanna know, so let me just tell you, Jesus is gonna get you. That's how, that's that's, that's the way a lot of people view boldness. It's not it. I want you to think of boldness as being the boat. And I want you to see the sea under it is love. And as the tide comes in and the waters rise, as love rises, boldness goes up too. Boldness is attached to your love. Boldness is not about mastering a way to defend your position so that everybody knows you're right. That is not biblical boldness. Biblical boldness is not about guilting people, manipulating people, controlling people, are talking over people's heads, not giving them the ability to speak. Boldness is loving people enough to listen and then giving an answer where it's appropriate and doing it without apologizing. Now, I preach to you with elevated tones, a little edge to it, because you're my brothers and sisters, and I'm exhorting you. But when I'm dealing in a situation if it was similar to this, or dealing with any person that doesn't know Jesus, I'm not gonna use those tones. I'm not gonna use all those words, why? Because in that moment, I'm not trying to exhort a brother or sister, I'm trying to bring in a lost one. So we say the same truth, and we're bold and unapologetic. Right now my family is working with a person from the homosexual community. And we're, we're trying desperately to help this person recognize that there's a love for God over this person's life and that his sexuality does not undermine that love, but that there is a verse that states to all of us, whether we're heterosexual, homosexual, non-practicing, whatever our moral identification is, there's a verse that says, except you all repent, you will likewise perish. So repentance for sexuality, there just needs to be the blanket repentance that encompasses all the little sins. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not hedging on the issue. What I'm saying is I'm going for his soul, not his sexuality. When God gets a person's soul, he will eventually get their sexuality. And that goes for all of the heterosexual people that might or might not be sleeping around on the weekend, amen? Yeah, y'all went quiet. Come on. My point is this, the enemy is coming hard against your life, primarily to take this one pillar out. Because if he gets this, he renders you ineffective. What is it? Your love. If he can get you to stop loving, he wins. In the furnace room this morning, I knew God was dealing with my heart. This is so fresh for me that I'm not even going to be able to unpack it. This is what the Lord said to me. I'm just going to say it and trust you with it. Jeff, who talked you in to stop loving? Who talked you into stopping your love? Who did you let talk you into that? It pierced me. Because, I mean, I do love like a lot of us sometimes I love peeking around a wall I've always got ability to protect and preserve with certain types of people or certain individuals it is when we come out from that wall and instead of standing behind a wall we stand before the cross and we say Jesus you loved and it cost you everything and the kernel of wheat fell to the ground and died but it brought forth much fruit. Boldness is attached to love. And this morning, I hear the Lord just saying this. There's people that need to be set free and answer the very question that He asked me in the prayer room. Who did you let talk you into stop loving? And it's time to reclaim that. That is the punctuation of this message this morning. It's not to go out, raise your voice, start a ministry, pass out tracts, do this or that. All those things are fine. That's not what He's calling us to. He's calling us to consider that the reason we may not be as bold as we could be is because we don't love as we should. So would you stand to your feet this morning? Come, Holy Spirit. Yeah, man, I'm really sensing it. Who did you let talk you into not loving anymore? When did you stop loving? Stop lavishly loving. Stop freely loving. It's a place of your wounding. It's a place of where you gave love and it wasn't received and it wasn't reciprocated. It's a person or an event that occurred that caused you to shut down. Now I'm going to invite you this morning to come by faith and welcome the Holy Spirit to make you a kingdom lover again. You can love anybody, even if it's the individual that shuts you down through mistreatment, neglect, abandonment, or abuse. You come back to that point and you meet Jesus with that person in your heart, your mind, just meet Jesus right there. And Jesus will empower you in that moment to forgive and love And from that, a whole host of good things are going to come sweeping through. may not happen overnight, but it will come. I promise you. So Father, now, do the work that only you can do. Give us back our spine. Connect our boldness, Lord, with our hearts and our love. Set people free today so they can start walking. Leaping and praising God as those that have been freed. In Jesus' name, amen.